Imagine reading a newspaper in the 1840s while living on the west coast in a small town during the gold rush. The town is full of many people from all over the country seeking gold. It's bringing a lot of different people to a small area in a short amount of time. So as you flip through the newspaper, you notice a variety of stories. You're shocked as you get to some current events and you read that a local bar owner is suing a church. You read a little further to see that the the pastor had called a prayer meeting for the church to pray that God would shut down a local tavern. The pastor prayed with the people and they prayed and a week later, the bar building was caught by by a strike of lightning and burned to the ground. The bar owner when he heard that the pastor had prayed that God would shut their business down, sued the church. They went to court and he explained that he heard that the church had prayed that the business would no longer exist. The pastor, when hearing the court case, backpedaled. He dodged the claims. He admitted that the church had prayed that the bar would shut down, but he also claimed that no one in the church actually believed that anything would happen. The judge leaned back in his chair and looked forward in his court and he said, I can't believe what's happening right now. In my court is a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a pastor who doesn't. (laughs) Now fictional stories like this may cause some of us to laugh, but if we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest with others in our lives, we know that sometimes there is a great gulf between the words that come out of our mouth in prayer and our belief that God will answer or if he's even listening at all. And as we wrap up this series this morning that's been titled People Who Pray, we've seen prayers of confession, prayers for spiritual things, prayers of petition, and today we're going to see from 1 Chronicles 29 a prayer of celebration and sincerity. So I invite you to open up your Bible to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. As you turn there, I want to share a few details that will be helpful for us to understand this somewhat obscure passage. In 1 Chronicles 29, this is David's last prayer as king of Israel. He has served his people in the Lord for 40 years, and he is anticipating the building of the temple. In the beginning of 1 Chronicles 29, God's people are bringing offerings and sacrifices to God. Gold, silver, precious stones. They are bringing things so that the temple can one day be built. Then David prays this prayer. And shortly after, he anoints his son Solomon as king. And then David dies. And we would be wise if we take note of this prayer, not only as a prayer of celebration, but as some of David's last words as the king of Israel. So I invite you to follow along as I read 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 22. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. 
Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all of our fathers were. Our days of the earth are like the shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house, for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to the king. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord, and on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. This is the word of the Lord. We see four sections or movements in this text, and we'll start this morning with verses 10 to 13, where we see that David is praying to a magnificent God. David begins this prayer to a magnificent God. Although this series, as you see on the front of your compass, is titled about people who pray, we know that's what's more important than the people who pray is who is being prayed to. And David is very clear in the beginning of this prayer, in verse 10, he is praying to the Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. He is praying to the eternal creator of the universe, the God of all. And the language is interesting in verse 10. It uses the word blessed twice. And usually the word blessed or blessing is something that God does to us. God blesses his people. He gives a blessing to his people. But in this prayer of celebration, David has turned it upside down. And he is praying a blessing or praise to God. And David starts out right here in this first section with a list of 12 qualities and or actions of God. We get the sense as he's celebrating the, the end of his reign as king and the beginning of his son being king, as he's celebrating the fact that the temple will one day soon, Lord willing, be built, that he is so overwhelmed by what God has done that he's at a loss for description. 
It's like he's in awe of God and he just starts firing away praise to God. You can look down in your Bible or look up here on the screen. He lists 12 qualities or actions of God. He says this of God. He said, yours is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty, for all that's in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and give strength to all. It's as if at the beginning of this prayer, David is scratching the surface of who God is and what he has done. As one commentator said, it's almost like he picked up a theological dictionary or a study Bible, and any theological word that he reads, he just prays it to God. And he is overwhelmed with thankfulness in this prayer. Now, I think it's important for us to note in this prayer, and specifically in the beginning, the God-centeredness of this prayer. For a lot of times when we watch television, when there's an actor or an athlete or a politician who maybe recently won or achieved something, what happens? They put the camera in their face, they put a microphone in front of their mouth, and sometimes they give praise to God, but then they go on and just talk about themselves, right? We've seen this over and over again on television. But the opposite of that is happening here in this celebratory prayer. 25 times in this prayer do we see the words you or your, and 11 times in these first four verses. Now, before we move on, I think as we think about our own prayer lives, if we think about the prayers that we have prayed even today or maybe over the past week, I think it would be interesting if someone transcribed our prayers if we recorded the prayers that we prayed to God and someone transcribed them and they wrote them down on paper, I wonder how many times the word you and your would be found compared to the times we pray about me or my or I. For we must remember it's not wrong to bring requests to God. But in this prayer, David reminds us that our prayers must be centered on who God is is. And this God that David is praying to, he is being described in verses 10 to 13 as being a magnificent God. Now time fails us to look at all 12 of these qualities or actions that God has done. But I think it is interesting if we think about this list, we think about these 12 qualities and actions of God, that if we remember who is praying this prayer, this is David if we remember this, we can realize how God's faithfulness in David's life has shaped this prayer of celebration. For instance, let's just look at a few of them. First, right in the middle of this first section, he prays that yours is the glory and the victory and the majesty. It's as if David is close to death. His last corporate prayer in front of the people of God and it's as if he's remembering back to when he was a shepherd boy, to when the giant Goliath was standing in front of God's people, mocking the Lord God Almighty, and no one would stand up to the bully. And li the little shepherd boy David stood up, and God used him to kill Goliath, 
not only to win a battle, but to, to stop the defaming of God's name. And I can almost hear in David's mind an echo of David saying, yours was the glory and the victory of the majesty back then when I beat Goliath, and yours is the glory and the victory and the majesty today. Or maybe another one in this list. It's interesting, of all the things he prays about the magnificent God, he prays, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Again, let's think about who's praying this. This is David. He wrote many of the Psalms. And it's like we can hear in the backdrop of this claim that for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours, it's as if we can hear part of Psalm 8, where the psalmist David wrote, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. It's like this last prayer that David prays before he dies. He thinks back to the time he was a little shepherd boy. When light pollution wasn't the same that it is today. And he's out in the field with a bunch of sheep. And he looks up and he sees the stars. And he sees layers upon layers of stars. It's almost as if the theologians in the band Switchfoot were correct when they wrote the lyrics. When I look at the stars, I see someone else. And David thinks back to his life as a boy and thinks now at the end of his life. And he explains, not only do I see the evidence of God in the heavens, but God owns it all. Or maybe one more worth pointing out at the end of this list where he says, In your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and give strength to all. God was so faithful to David as the king. David knew the kingdom that he inherited, and he knew the kingdom that now he was leaving to his son, Solomon. And he was anticipating what God would continue to do in the kingdom to come. He knew that, that this was true. That in God's hand is to make great and to give strength to all. So as we think about the beginning of this prayer and as we think about how God's faithfulness in David's life has shaped this prayer of celebration, I think it's important for us to think about our own prayers. Maybe even the prayers that we have prayed this last week. We must, be, we must be careful not to let our experience with God be the sole factor that shapes our prayers or that shapes our relationship with God. However, how has God's faithfulness in your life shaped the prayers that you are praying today? How has God's faithfulness in our lives maybe decades ago shaped our prayers of celebration toward God today? And as we consider this idea of celebration, we consider David praying a, a, a prayer with a tone of celebration toward God. This leads us to a summary statement of this whole chapter, which I believe is this, that God's greatness, the greatness of the God who, who David is praying to, prompts prayers of generosity and humble obedience. That God's greatness prompts prayers of generosity and humble obedience. This is more than David just knowing about God. This is not him just filling his mind with intellect of these 12 qualities or actions of God. 
but it's the fact that David has encountered this magnificent God, and this is prompting him to pray even more. And the prayers that we see are prayers of generosity and humble obedience. We see this in the very next section, verses 14 to 17, where we see David acknowledging the generosity that comes from God. Now, normally when we hear the word generosity, normally we don't think about it coming from God, right? Normally we think of generosity that we give toward God. But what we see in this section, verses 14 to 17, is we see the fact that any generosity that we have toward God is first and foremost because God has been generous to us. But it's important to notice as we look at this next section, verses 14 to 17, David still has not given any request. I'll put my cards on the table. When I pray, my prayers are full of requests. I ask God for a lot of things. And again, that's not wrong. God wants to know what's on our heart and he wants us to pray and ask him for things. But David models well that before we get to request, we need to make sure that our heart is in the correct position. And in verses 14 to 17, before he gets to any request that, he, that he's giving toward God, first he asks one of the most fundamental questions in life. Look down with me in verse 14. After acknowledging how magnificent God was, in verse 14 he says, But who am I? When's the last time we have thought about that? Who am I? And when we answer that question, who we are, and we compare it to the magnificent God that David has just explained and prayed to, we realize how small we are compared to how big God is. We realize that God is gigantic and huge and we are very small and David feels it and we read it in his prayer. Look at the next verse with me, verse 15. He asked who he is, he compares himself to God and this is what he says in verse 15. He feels like a stranger before you, like a sojourner. Our days on the earth are like a shadow. He began by praying to the God who is on his throne forever and ever, and David realizes that his time on earth is very short. It's like a shadow. Yet God still desires to hear from his people. And David realizes even though God is big and he is small, that verse 16 points out that they are still able to bring sacrifices to God. They are still able to bring offerings to the Lord God Almighty. In verse 16, David acknowledges that all the abundance that we have provided for building you a house, and again, maybe this week you'll have some time to go back and look in the beginning of this chapter. Again, they were bringing, they were bringing gold and silver and stones and just all kinds of offerings. David admits here in verse 16, all that we brought for building you a house, for your holy name, it didn't come from David, and it didn't come from the people. It comes from your hand and is all your own. David, even before he brings any request to God, he is praying a prayer of generosity. 
David reminds us this morning that we don't need to look at our worship and we don't need to look at our giving as an obligation. We can give and we do give to God because as verse 16 says, God owns all. It makes sense that if God owns all things and he entrusts things to us, then we would give back to him. And if there's anyone that we can trust with our offerings, it should be the Lord God Almighty because he owns it all anyways. But as we think of this generosity explained in verses 14 to 17, there's a few things that are important for us to point out that this is not. This is not the type of generosity that some might describe as, quote, check the box generosity. For some of us who are here in this room this morning, maybe like me, recovering Pharisees or recovering legalists, who when we come before God to give generously to God, we like to know the exact amount that we're supposed to give so we can check the box and move on in life. But this isn't the generosity that David's praying about here. The generosity he's praying about here also is not the, quote, give so that God will give back to us generosity. This is not that we give to God. David isn't praying, God, we gave so much to you because we knew you would give it back to us anyways. That's known as the prosperity gospel. Seeking God in order that God will give back to us. I recently came face to face with the prosperity gospel, prayers like this, praying so God would give back to us in a way I never had before. I was recently in Mexico training youth pastors and youth leaders, and I stopped to visit my brother in Mexico City, who's a missionary. Mexico City is one of the biggest cities in the world, and my brother lives in one of the poorest neighborhoods of the city. And we were walking through the sidewalks, and I was seeing sights and hearing noises and smelling smells and looking over my shoulder as we're walking through. And all of a sudden, I saw this huge building. It had pillars on the front. It had huge windows. It had a giant fence. And right in the front middle, there was a huge golden cross. And in the middle of this poor neighborhood of one of the biggest cities in the world was a church that was not praying, P-R-A-Y, for the people, but was praying, P-R-E-Y, on the people, trying to tell these poor people that if they would give to the church, that God would give back to them, right? Trying to say, hey, if you give offerings to the church, God might lift you out of this poor neighborhood, but we know that's not the generosity God's talking about here or David's praying for here. We must be careful when we think about generosity that we're not just giving to God in order to get back. Now let's be clear. God does honor obedience. But the prayer that David is praying here is we don't give to get, but we give, as verse 16 says, we give because God already owns all. The third thing we, we're reminded that this generosity is not, is th this generosity is not something that's becoming popular in our culture called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This is the view that's becoming popular, especially among millennials and Gen Z and those younger, my own generation, where people pray to God and they look at God as if he's a therapist in the sky. That God will affirm anything we pray. 
God will affirm the feelings that we bring before him and that if we ask for anything, of course God will give it to us because God knows we need it. And it's as if we're praying to a fairy in the sky. But there could be nothing further from the truth when we think of these verses, verses 14 to 17. David is praying a prayer of generosity, not in order to get anything from God, but because he knows that God owns it all. Think about the theologian Abraham Kuyper, who wrote many years ago this sentence that I think sums this up very well. Abraham Kuyper reminds us that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything in our whole human existence is God's. And because everything is God's, we can give generously to him. As Elder Bo prayed, open-handedly to him. Not holding back and just giving out of the side pocket, but we can give to God. David is praying a prayer of generosity that was prompted by the magnificence and the greatness of who God is. Now we must keep moving ahead, but we would be remiss if we didn't just mention and ask the question, as we think about generosity, where do we see God's generosity in our own lives? Well, we could answer that question with many different answers. Where do we see God's generosity? But we know where we chiefly see God's generosity. We chiefly see God's generosity in the verse that many of us in this room know. In the verse that if we were to take a straw poll this morning, more people probably have memorized than any other verse in the room. John 3.16. Where do we see God's generosity? For God so loved the world that he gave that he gave his only son. We see that God is generous by the fact that he gave Jesus Christ to save people from their sins. David is corporately praying here. He's praying on behalf and to God for the people. And he's reminding us this morning, we can never outgive God. And we would be wise if we think about our own prayers to remember this as we pray before God this week. But David's prayer does continue. And in verse 18, we finally do get to request or things that he comes to God and asks God for. But again, we might be surprised compared to many of my requests that I bring to God, which are often for material things. We see in verses 18 to 19 that the, mag the magnificence of who God is and the greatness of who God is it prompts David to pray and to ask God for requests for spiritual desires that lead to obedience. He's not asking for material things. He's asking that God would do something in his heart and in the heart of his people. The first request we see in this whole prayer, and let's look down here and let's look at these spiritual requests that he's praying he prays for God's people that God, in these verses 18 to 19, that God would keep forever such purposes in thoughts in the hearts of your people. He prays that God would direct the hearts of the people toward himself. And then he prays for his son 
whom I'm sure David, I mean, we know this as parents and grandparents and like, like he's at the end of his, like the end of his life. He's about to make his son the king. This is a hinge point in the people of God. Not just in the Old Testament, but for all of church history and of all eternity. He's about to make his son king. And what does he pray for his son? He prays in verse 19 that his son would have a whole heart, that he may keep your commandments, that, God, that he would keep your testimonies, your statutes, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. The overarching theme of the request that we see in this celebratory prayer is that David is praying for spiritual things. Again, time is, is running low. We, we cannot look at all of these in depth as we would like to, but let's look at a few of them. He prays in verse 18 that God would direct their hearts toward you. What a prayer to pray for our children to pray for our friends, to pray for our coworkers. I might not know what to pray, but I can pray, God, would you direct my family's hearts towards you? He continues, he doesn't only pray this, but we must remember who's praying this prayer. How was David explained in the Old Testament? He was explained as a man after God's own heart. And David knew his heart's propensity towards sin. And if a man who's after the very heart of God struggled with sin, he knew that he should pray for the people that their hearts would be directed towards him. Let's also, as we think about these requests in verses 18 and 19, as we think about the request for spiritual things, let's remember the context that why he was praying this prayer was because the offerings just came forward to build the temple. Now, some of us this morning, including myself at times, we need to brush up on our Old Testament history. That's why I'm a fan of just reading through the Bible in a year because we can read things that we might not normally get to in day-to-day in, in -day life. But what was happening with the temple? Well, the reason he's praying these prayers is, he, is God's people were hoping that a temple would be built that a building would be built, that his son would build this temple in order for God's people to uniquely meet with God. Then why would he pray these prayers that God would direct their hearts towards him? Why would he pray that his son, that his son would follow the commandments? Because David knew that having a building, having a temple was not going to change the human heart. But we needed God to do something inside of us that a building can not do. Now we, we pray this prayer often. We pray this prayer as we sing the song that I, I think is, is probably one of, our, one of our favorite songs around here, at least one of my favorite songs, Come Thou Fount, written in 1758. And when we sing this song in this room together, we're actually praying a version of this prayer. Look at the words that are gonna be up here on the screen. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
And when we're singing this song together, we're praying an echo of what David prayed, this request, not for material things, but we know that our heart so often seeks material things in our world that we turn into idols and we worship with our time and attention and desires rather than worshiping the Lord God Almighty. And David prayed that the people would, that their hearts would be bound to God. And we pray this every time we sing this song. But another interesting request he gives us in verses 18 to 19 is he says, after he reminds, he reminds the people as he's praying to God that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Again, a reminder of some Old Testament history. God didn't just show up on the scene. He's always been at work. And he prays in the middle of verse 18 that keep forever such purposes. He asks God to keep his purposes. It should cause us when we read this to ask, what are the purposes of God? And there's many ways that we could answer that question, but if we just use the text in front of us, one of the purposes of God, as he continues in verse 18, is that God would have a people. We see in verse 18, he explains your people. One of the purposes of God is that God would have an everlasting people. And as David prays this, shortly before he dies— Shortly before he anoints his son Solomon king, and shortly before, hopefully, he was hoping that the temple would be built, how would God accomplish this people? How would God answer this prayer that one day he would have an everlasting people, a people who would last forever? Would it be through King David? No. Would it be through his son, King Solomon? No. No, it would be through their descendant, King Jesus, whose perfect obedience to the Father's plan now makes a way for all people to become part of God's family. Where today, as people put their faith and trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ, it's almost as if it's an answer to David's prayer he prays in 1 Chronicles 29, that we become part of the eternal people of God. When David finally got to the section of his request in verses 18 to 19, we should take note, he was not praying for material things. And it should cause us, again, as I mentioned earlier, if someone was taking a, a tra- a transcribing our own prayers, would they find that we're praying for material things or are we praying for spiritual things? I want to encourage us this morning that as we think about our own prayer lives, I know for some of us, we know that we're supposed to pray, right? For some of us, we know that we're supposed to pray for spiritual things, but we don't know how. And I want to encourage you, maybe this week, think of one or two or three, just make a list, maybe on the back of your compass right now, of three spiritual things you desire for God to do in your life. Maybe you want God to grow you in generosity. Maybe you want God to grow you in patience towards a coworker. Maybe you want God to grow you in wonder, not W-A-N-D-E-R, but wonder, W-O-N-D-E-R, wonder of who he is. And we can model, we can go after David's model of praying not only for material things, but for spiritual things. But this prayer continues in this very last section, verses 20 to 22, 
where we see an affirmation of David's corporate prayer. David starts in verse 10. It says that David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And now that corporate prayer turns into individual prayer in verse 20, where David says to the assembly, bless the Lord your God. All of the people are now individually blessing God. Same words we saw in verse 10. Not God blessing us. He already has done that. But now we bless God. We see in this short section in verses 20 to 22, we see the people um, offering sacrifices to God. This, this worship that they were bringing to God, it was costing them something. 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, 1,000 lambs. It's almost like they were putting into practice the prayer that David had just prayed for them to God. They're putting their money where their mouth is. They're bringing sacrifices to God. And last, we see in verse 22, we see as David prays this prayer to the, of the greatness of God that has prompted more prayers of generosity and humble obedience, we see that there was great gladness. In the middle of verse 22, before the section break in your Bible, it says in verse 22, they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. We don't need to think of our prayers as only being something that we are obligated to do. They don't need to be something that we force ourselves to do because it's so hard to pray, but we just go before God. No, we see that as God's people prayed here, both corporately and individually, they did so, verse 22, with great gladness. It is a joy to go before the Lord in prayer because he is a great and magnificent God. Now, Jim Elliott is a name that many people in this room are familiar with. He was a missionary in the, 1950, in the 1950s to the Alca Indians in Ecuador. He was trained and educated at Wheaton College with a desire to give everything he had for the glory of God. After trying to figure out where God might be sending him, he decided that he would go to Ecuador to these Alca Indians that the word Alca translated would mean savages. The reason that no one had shared the gospel with them yet is because they were hard to reach. And Jim Elliott and his friends decided that maybe God desired for them to go and share the gospel in the jungles of Ecuador. Well, June 8th, 1956, him and his friends had, had communication with the Indians. They were excited because they thought that this would be first steps in sharing the gospel with them. And instead, not one, not two, not three, not four, but all five of them were murdered by the Alca Indians. People look at a story like this and they say, why would he waste his life like this? This was an educated man. He was a married man. He had a little girl at home. Why would he give his life to share the gospel with people who were hard to reach? And people from around the world, as this news story was spreading around the globe that this man and his friends had died, people were asking the question, why would he waste his life? 
And when answering this question, we're reminded of something he wrote in his journal nearly seven years earlier. He died in 1956, but on October 28, 1949, Jim Elliott scribbled in his journal a sentence that I think summarizes our sermon today. He wrote that he is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, that he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott wrote seven years before he was martyred in the jungles of Ecuador, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Thinking of this prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, Jim Elliott understood the magnitude of who God is. And it led Jim Elliott not only to prayers of generosity and prayers of obedience, but it led him to actions of generosity. It led him to actions of obedience. He literally gave all that he had so that people could hear the gospel. Now, I'm not sure what God desires for each of us in this room this morning. I don't know what God desires for your life. I don't know if God is desiring for you to be a missionary. I bet he is for some, and I pray he is for some in this room. I don't know if he desires for you to be a businessman. I don't know if he desires for you to be a teacher. I don't know if he desires for you to be a mechanic. I don't know if he desires blue collar, white collar. I don't know if he desires the high calling of a stay-at-home mom. The list could go on and on and on. But I do know, as we conclude this series of being a people who pray, one thing that God desires for every single person in this room, God desires that we would humbly pray to him. And it's my prayer that David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29 would urge us to understand the magnitude of who God is and that it would prompt us toward greater generosity and greater obedience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. And Father, thank you for preserving your word for us this morning. And I pray for myself and for the people in this room, my friends. Father, I pray that you would grow us in an understanding of who you are. But Father, I pray that it wouldn't just be empty intellect in our minds. I pray that it would prompt us towards greater generosity. And that Father, with your strength, we would humbly obey you in whatever you call us to do. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.